Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Mary Louise Hawkins flushed with pride. The grand opening party for Kogan and Company was going as well as she could have hoped. The store was full of sophisticated and wealthy guests browsing the selection of high-end antiques. They were just the sort of people the Kogans wanted to patronize their business. She could tell that the store's owner, Barbara Kogan, was pleased as well. It was Mary Louise's biggest account so far, and the launch had gone off without a hitch. Mary Louise watched Barbara swimming through the crowd of partygoers until the two women were standing next to each other. Barbara looked amused as she leaned in and said, you have to meet my husband. He tells me he thinks you're attractive. Barbara pointed across the room to George Kogan. Mary Louise didn't quite know how to respond. She had never met George, only talked to him on the phone. But as she studied him, she thought it was time to finally introduce herself in person. If they were going to be working together long-term, Mary Louise wanted their relationship to get off to a good start. As the party began to wind down, Mary Louise approached George and told him she was flattered by his compliment. George smiled at her, looked at her kindly, and told her that he meant it. They parted ways, but for the rest of the evening, they kept catching each other's eye. Every time Mary Louise discovered him gazing at her, she felt a little thrill of pleasure. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, 
we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In this episode, we're discussing George and Barbara Kogan, how their 25-year marriage grew into a successful business collaboration, and how both partnerships came to an end when George fell in love with a younger woman. We'll also talk about the couple's bitter divorce proceedings and Barbara's drastic plan to end her marriage. Next week, we'll explore a shocking murder and the authorities' 20-year effort to convict the perpetrators. George Kogan was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico on September 25, 1941. His father, Solomon, a Russian immigrant, had moved to Puerto Rico in the 1930s. Unlike the rest of the United States, Puerto Rico did not impose refugee quotas limiting immigration, so dozens of Solomon's Russian siblings, cousins, and other relatives were able to join him in San Juan. The family pooled their resources and opened a department store, which would be the first of several successful businesses and investments. By the time George was born, Solomon and his wife, Ida, were among the island's most well-to-do families. As a young man, George moved to New York City to attend New York University. He had acquired a taste for art, music, and theater, and he enjoyed living in the cultural capital of America. In 1961, 20-year-old George attended an off-Broadway show. He found himself attracted to one of the dancers on stage. He was so impressed that he went backstage to meet her after the show ended. Her name was Barbara Siegel. Barbara was the younger of two daughters, born to Rose and Emmanuel Siegel on February 10, 1943. The Siegels lived a solidly middle-class life in Morristown, New Jersey, and Barbara grew up in a traditional comfortable family. She envisioned a similar future for herself as she reached adulthood. But although she hoped to meet a nice man, settle down and get married, she also wanted to broaden her horizons beyond the suburban enclaves of New Jersey. When she finished high school, 18-year-old Barbara moved to New York City to attend Barnard College. Barbara was a talented singer and dancer. So in addition to her academic pursuits, she sought out performing opportunities in the theater. Through their mutual love of the arts, 18-year-old Barbara Siegel and 20-year-old George Kogan came into each other's lives. Upon their first introduction, George asked Barbara out to dinner and Barbara happily accepted. According to the millionaire's wife, the true story of a real estate tycoon, his beautiful young mistress, and a marriage that ended in murder by Kathy Scott 
George and Barbara's relationship was not a burning love affair. It was a quiet, practical courtship. George liked Barbara because she seemed composed and sensible, pretty but approachable. Barbara thought George was stable and pleasant to be around. She enjoyed their cultured outings to the city's art museums and trendy restaurants. As a bonus, George came from a family worth $40 million, over $335 million today. Even though Barbara and George had grown up in vastly different financial positions, they had an easy compatibility with one another. Despite his affluence, George had spent many summers employed in his family's department stores. Similarly, as a teenager, Barbara had helped out in the jewelry store her father owned. From their retail experience, both had developed a practical business sense that they intended to put to good use in the future. In fact, George was so secure in his plans to continue on in his family business that he dropped out of NYU before completing his degree. He remained in New York until Barbara finished college, and then in 1964, 23-year-old George and 21-year-old Barbara eloped. With the Vietnam War escalating under President Lyndon Johnson, some family members speculated that George's decision to marry was motivated more by a desire to avoid the draft than by his enthusiasm for Barbara. But even if George had other incentives pushing him towards marriage, he appeared to be eager and happy to begin a life with Barbara. The newlywed soon relocated to George's home city of San Juan, Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, George and Barbara had the good fortune of being close to family, which was important to both of them. The Kogans were a tight-knit clan. On weekends, George's parents would host lively brunches, inviting siblings, cousins, nieces, and nephews to their sprawling mountain home. It was their relaxing sanctuary away from the city. Barbara wanted her family to be close by as well. After she moved to Puerto Rico, her parents and older sister Elaine left New Jersey to join the Kogans in San Juan. Buoyed by the support of their extended family, George and Barbara were excited to have children of their own. They initially had trouble conceiving, so in 1966, they adopted a baby boy, whom they named Scott. A month after they brought the infant home, Barbara became pregnant with their second child, a baby boy they named William Stewart. With her respectable marriage and two little boys, Barbara had the picture book family she herself had grown up in, with the added benefit of being part of the wealthiest circles of Puerto Rican high society. Barbara was dazzled by her luxurious life with George. Their neighborhood, the Concado district of San Juan, had been developed as a touristy resort town modeled after Miami Beach. The family lived in a penthouse condo with views of the ocean. Barbara developed an appreciation for high fashion and designer clothes, and those who knew her called her one of the best-dressed women in the city. When she had performed on stage as a singer and dancer, she had loved being the center of attention. Now, as a member of the elite class, she took pleasure in seeing her name appear in gossip columns and society pages. Although wealth undoubtedly made Barbara's life easier, it may have also made her more susceptible to loss aversion. Before I continue with Barbara's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, 
but I have done a lot of research for the show. Under the loss aversion theory, most people would prefer to avoid loss than to acquire gains. For example, individuals are more bothered by the idea of losing $10 than they are pleased by winning $10. According to Dr. Sharam Heshmat, an addiction specialist and associate professor at the University of Illinois, people tend to become extremely attracted to objects in our possession and feel anxious to give them up. Ironically, the more we have, the more vulnerable we are. Having accumulated wealth implies that we have more to lose than to gain. As her status climbed, brought about entirely because of her relationship with George and his family, Barbara had to contend with fears that it all might be taken away from her. But these anxieties were a minor inconvenience compared to the benefits of the lavish life bestowed upon her. Though she enjoyed her life of privilege, Barbara was a hard worker who had no intention of becoming one of the idle rich. She juggled the responsibilities of young motherhood with further education, earning her graduate degree from the University of Puerto Rico. After finishing school, she enthusiastically joined the Kogan family businesses, which George operated along with his siblings and cousins. Barbara helped George oversee the Kogan's real estate expansion as he purchased hotels and other properties. When they traveled, it was as much about work as pleasure. They used trips to scout out new business prospects or to buy goods to sell in the Kogan's chain of department stores. Though they seemed to be constantly at work, it was not a grind. They enjoyed it and they worked well together. George was the more easygoing of the pair. One cousin said that the only time he saw George dressed in a suit was at a wedding. Barbara had more exacting standards. One employee even called her a drama queen, but their different approaches complemented one another. Combining their high ambitions, enterprising personalities, and good instincts made for a profitable relationship. Over the next 25 years, their partnership thrived. Many of their ventures required Barbara and George to work long days together, side by side. When George took over a company called International Gem Enterprises, Barbara served as its vice president and secretary. Barbara was so enmeshed in George's family businesses that even her family members followed suit. Barbara's father worked at a Kogan-owned tourism magazine called the Caribbean Sun, and her sister worked at one of the family's casinos. Barbara did try to carve out a space just for herself. She owned and managed her own dress shop and later opened her own home furniture store. But much of her time was still devoted to working with George. Psychologist Kathy Marshak noted that there is nothing wrong with couples working together, but with increased time together, you have more time for conflict. She added that the skills required to achieve in business are often at odds with the skills that promote a healthy relationship. Part of George and Barbara's professional success stemmed from a certain level of ruthlessness in business dealings. This callousness did not necessarily translate well into love. Moreover, by completely interweaving their work and marital relationship, George and Barbara may have cultivated a lack of healthy boundaries. Psychoanalyst Ann Chandler 
said that when someone's identity is wrapped up in meeting the other person's needs, their own life goals are thwarted. Even though Barbara was a valuable player in the Kogan family enterprise, part of her still felt restless and perhaps unfulfilled. As her sons, 21-year-old Scott and 20-year-old William grew older and left home, Barbara wanted to take a step towards independence, away from the world of the Kogans. In 1987, 44-year-old Barbara asked 46-year-old George if he would consider moving back to New York. She may have felt that after devoting two and a half decades of their marriage to building up the vast Kogan business network, it was time for the couple to make time for themselves and recommit to one another. George Kogan mulled over the idea of leaving Puerto Rico. It was a big change for him, and he had to consider all the practical concerns. He had to weigh the cost to his business and think of the complications that would inevitably arise in the process of selling off assets and extracting himself from the family empire. Business aside, family was another concern. He was sad to leave behind the many relatives he shared his life with in Puerto Rico, but things had changed since George's childhood when his entire family lived a stone's throw away from each other. George's sons now both attended university on the mainland, and his sister Myrna lived in New Jersey with her children. George couldn't deny that he felt a twinge of nostalgia for his youth. He liked the idea of reuniting with his sibling. And of course, there was Barbara to think of. As she put it, they had a chance to return to the scene where they first met and fell in love. She framed it as a romantic adventure. Perhaps she was right. At the very least, George supposed he owed it to her to consider her proposal. She had left behind everything she knew to start a new life with him in Puerto Rico and stayed by his side for 25 years. Now it was George's turn to return the favor to her. George reasoned that it was the fair thing to do. In 1988, George Kogan informed his family of his plans to move to New York City. The Kogans sold off the chain of department stores they owned together. And as one cousin said, everybody went their own way. Barbara and George Kogan were all set to start fresh in New York City. Coming up, we'll talk about how George and Barbara's new beginning set them on a path towards anguish and violence. Now back to the story. After meeting in New York City in 1961, college sweethearts George Kogan and Barbara Siegel married, moved to George's home territory of Puerto Rico, and spent a successful 25 years working to expand George's family business empire. But in 1988, 45-year-old Barbara convinced 47-year-old George that it was time for a change. She wanted to move back to New York and start a new company that they could run together, just the two of them. Barbara hoped the move would bring them closer together. After the pair purchased an apartment on the Upper East Side, they turned their focus to a new project. They planned to open a store called Kogan & Company, selling high-end furniture and antiques. They were off to a promising start when they purchased a space on 76th Street and Madison Avenue in one of the trendier shopping districts of Manhattan. Then, 
Marlboro went to work on the details of launching the new business. She and George added a vast array of fine antiques to their inventory, ranging in cost from $50 to $100,000. Next on Barbara's to-do list was to hire someone to handle the store's publicity. She turned to the rising PR firm Evans Communications, which assigned 26-year-old Mary Louise Hawkins to handle the Kogan account. Barbara took a liking to Mary Louise right away. She came from a family she described as country club types. Like Barbara, Mary Louise had been a dancer in her youth. As an adult, she retained a ballerina's grace. She had a degree from Brown University and an impressive fluency with the language of high society. Her previous jobs were with companies associated with luxury and sophistication, Sotheby's and Tiffany & Co. The Kogans wanted their store to project the same level of refinement, and Barbara thought that Mary Louise was the perfect person to cultivate this reputation. Barbara and George were ready to open the doors of Kogan & Company on November 3, 1988. They held a party for the grand opening with Mary Louise helping to greet guests at the door. On this evening, George met Mary Louise in person for the first time. He was so taken with Mary Louise that he told his wife he found her attractive. His comment did not bother Barbara. She even passed the compliment on to Mary Louise. It never occurred to her that her dependable husband might have improper thoughts about a woman 20 years his junior. So Barbara was pleased rather than suspicious when George began taking a more active role in overseeing the business and Mary Louise's job in particular. Mary Louise had plenty of work to do as a lead publicist for the Kogans. The launch party was a success, but the store still faced early challenges. Within a few weeks, Barbara had a dispute with the store manager and clerks because she wanted them to use the basement bathroom rather than the in-store facilities. Barbara ultimately terminated the employees, three of whom later filed a discrimination suit against the Kogans. Mary Louise did her best to sweep the bad press aside and replace it with positive coverage. As she worked on her media strategy, she found herself working less with Barbara and more with George. Their meetings quickly became more social. After going over their PR plans, they would unwind with a casual lunch. Soon, George began inviting her to go to breakfast before work. If Barbara was bothered by their relationship, she made no indication of it. However, she did remark that Mary Louise might be perfect for their 22-year-old son, Scott. She even set the two up on a date, but after meeting for coffee once, Mary Louise wasn't interested in pursuing anything further with Scott Kogan. Despite the age difference, she preferred spending time with his father, George. Mary Louise thought George was very attentive. He wanted to know everything about her. His questions were often personal, but Mary Louise didn't find them overly intrusive because George didn't behave like a lecher. He was sweetly bashful, gentle-tempered, and down-to-earth. She felt like she could talk to him about anything. George confided in her as well. One day, over lunch at the Plaza Hotel, he told her that he wasn't happy in his marriage. 
He felt that he and Barbara had grown apart over the years. Barbara had hoped moving to New York might rekindle their affections, but George didn't think there was anything to rekindle. Work had been so central to their marriage that at some point he had come to see Barbara as more of a business partner than a wife. But he felt differently about Mary Louise. George was nervous. He had never been a so-called ladies' man in his youth, and after 25 years of monogamy, he certainly didn't have any experience propositioning beautiful women half his age. But Mary Louise made him want to take the risk. Since meeting her, George felt alive in a way he'd never felt before. His whole life, he had been settling for affection, Now, he knew what it meant to feel passion. For the very first time, he was head over heels in love. He didn't know if a woman like Mary Louise would ever be interested in him, but the only way to find out was to be direct with her. And if he was going to reveal his intentions, he thought it best to make some kind of grand gesture. George was planning a business trip back to Puerto Rico, He decided to ask Mary Louise to join him. She might say no, she might even laugh in his face, but if she said yes, it could be the romantic getaway of a lifetime. To George's delight, Mary Louise agreed to accompany him to Puerto Rico. George pulled out all the stops to impress her. They spent four days at the Caribe Hilton, a deluxe hotel with lagoon views, a spa, and a secluded beach. George's overtures worked. By the end of the trip, Mary Louise was as much in love with him as he was with her. For George, the vacation cemented the fact that his marriage was over. A week after they returned, he decided it was time to end things with Barbara. He warned Mary Louise what he planned to do. He rented a room at the Plaza Hotel and told her to stay there and wait for him. Then, he went home to face his wife. When George admitted to the affair, Barbara was blindsided. The possibility of an affair seemed completely out of character for him. And she had thought so highly of Mary Louise. She felt completely betrayed by the duplicity of the woman she herself had hired to represent Kogan and company. The infidelity of a partner isn't just painful. According to psychologist and marriage counselor, Dr. Randy Gunther, it can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. Feelings of devastation and humiliation are among the most difficult to overcome. And these feelings are especially strong when the spouse's affair occurred with a trusted individual or friend. Gunther also stated that it is important for the betraying partner to weather whatever frustration, anguish, or retaliation their betrayed partner needs to express. They must be willing to stay, for however much time it may take, to put their own needs and underlying grievances aside, and to fully commit to the healing of the partner's rage and grief. But George didn't want to weather Barbara's rage. Mary Louise was waiting for him at the Plaza Hotel, and George was eager to return to her. Barbara tried to question George, but he wouldn't even grant her the formality of having a discussion. After telling Barbara that he was in love with Mary Louise and that their marriage was over, 
George walked out. Once her husband left, Barbara fell apart. She called her son William to come keep her company. He too was shocked by the news. This behavior didn't seem like his father at all. But when he spoke to his father on the phone, George confirmed the affair. If the family thought it might be a passing infatuation, George was quick to prove them wrong. Within a month, he had moved into Mary Louise's apartment. He joined her in Connecticut when she went home to her family for the Christmas holidays. And though they had just been on a trip to Puerto Rico, he took her on a second vacation to St. Bart's. Within a few months, they took a third trip to Anguilla and then a fourth to Miami Beach. If George's relationship with Barbara had felt like all work and no play, he now seemed determined to enjoy himself. To Barbara, George's bliss only twisted the knife. She still received all the credit card bills, so she was kept up to date on her husband's lavish indulgences. This may have been an oversight on George's part. He could have simply forgotten to change the listed address on his accounts. But Barbara believed George was letting her see the charges deliberately to hurt her. Furious, she called Mary Louise's boss at her PR firm and informed him that Mary Louise was sleeping with George Kogan. She was immediately fired. George tried to intercede to no avail. The firm not only let Mary Louise go, it ended its contract with Kogan and company. Firing Mary Louise may have given Barbara some satisfaction, but it did nothing to ease her pain about the end of her marriage. Her trust was shattered. She felt that George's behavior cast doubt on all the years they had shared together, and she questioned whether Mary Louise was George's first foray into unfaithfulness. In her divorce affidavit, she stated, if he did have affairs, at least he had the decency and common sense to be discreet about his activities. But George's very public relationship with Mary Louise was too much for Barbara to take. In February of 1989, just three months after George and Mary Louise's first introduction at the grand opening party, Barbara filed for divorce, citing George's adultery as grounds. She packed up everything of George's that remained in her apartment and had it sent to Mary Louise's building. As the couple grew estranged, they could no longer work at Kogan and Company together, so George took over running the shop. Barbara was left without a husband and without a job to keep her busy. With little else to occupy her mind, she grew obsessed with the family finances. She was certain that George was draining all their savings to pander to Mary Louise. She thought this was an egregious treachery since she had worked just as hard as George to accumulate their fortune. She understandably felt that a good portion of the money he was spending rightfully belonged to her. George didn't seem to care. He remained in high spirits. He told everyone that he and Mary Louise were engaged. He was not going to let Barbara's bitterness keep him from reveling in his newfound love. George and Mary Louise continued to travel. They were seen walking around the city hand in hand. George's family, seeing how happy he was, approved of the relationship. 
One cousin said that George came to life after he met Mary Louise. He said the pair adored each other. George's sister agreed, saying that Mary Louise taught George how to live. But George and Mary Louise couldn't completely shut out the problem of George's divorce. For 25 years, Barbara's life had been completely entwined with George's, untangling their relationship including their complicated financial ties, would prove to be a difficult and volatile undertaking. Coming up, we'll talk about the Kogan's fight over assets and how the bitter proceedings push Barbara closer and closer to the edge of instability. Now back to the story. In November of 1988, business tycoon George Kogan left Barbara his wife of 25 years, to pursue a relationship with 26-year-old Mary Louise Hawkins. Barbara did not take the end of the marriage well. In her words, Barbara said, I am absolutely knocked off my feet by his cruelty and seeming indifference to my own efforts and problems. Oddly enough, I am not filled with anger. I am more numb than anything else. In addition to being shocked, Barbara seemed terrified by the prospect of being left destitute. Since marrying George, whose family was worth millions, Barbara had grown accustomed to a certain standard of living. She worried about it all being taken away, particularly because she had been such an involved partner in his business affairs throughout the relationship. After George left, Barbara wanted to find a new place to live, since the thought of remaining in their former apartment depressed her. But she had no intention of trading down. She chose the pricey Olympic Tower on Fifth Avenue as her new home. To help pay for it, she requested alimony in the amount of $5,000 per week, the equivalent of over $10,000 today. Barbara herself seemed to recognize that she was asking for an extreme sum of money, but she couldn't stand the thought of George living extravagantly while she was left in the cold. In the affidavit accompanying the request, Barbara wrote, for better or for worse, we have lived in this lifestyle for many years. I would certainly not want to live a different way while my husband continues to live such a style with his girlfriend replacing me. But the court was not moved by Barbara's entreaty. The judge denied her request He said that she might be entitled to alimony after the divorce was finalized, but until then, she would have to figure out another source of income. The court also froze the couple's assets until they could figure out how to properly divide everything. Both parties knew that this could take months or longer. Barbara complained to friends that she was penniless and she relied on money sent by her mother to get by. It was clear to everyone that Barbara was still finding it difficult to move on from her broken marriage. George seemed to have an easier adjustment. He was living in Mary Louise's apartment rent-free since the apartment was owned by Mary Louise's father. Mary Louise added George as a cardholder to her credit accounts. George was sometimes short on cash, But despite the frozen assets, he did not live like a man worried about his finances. He and Mary Louise continued their frequent travels to the Caribbean. When they were home, they enjoyed dining out at New York's best restaurants. 
Barbara was incensed by George's spending. She was certain he was not only frittering away shared assets, but that he was hiding money from her. George denied this. He said he was taking on extra debt or borrowing from Mary Louise to keep afloat, but Barbara didn't believe him. She remained furious, casting blame to any convenient target. She went through five different lawyers because she didn't feel that any of them were fighting hard enough on her behalf. She saw slights and insults everywhere. On Barbara's birthday, George sent her flowers and a possible peace offering, but she was outraged by the gesture, stating that it sent her into a tailspin. Most divorces are painful, but divorce consultant Susan Schofer has warned that toxic divorces are particularly fraught. She defined a toxic divorce as a divorce in which one party wants to dissolve the marriage in a more equitable way, while the other person not only refuses to cooperate, but they create a consistent string of chaos and ill will. Frequently in such divorces, finances are a bitter point of contention. As she stewed over George's life with Mary Louise, Barbara began taking her own trips to Puerto Rico, returning to the apartment the couple still owned in San Juan. She visited on the pretext of seeing their son, 23-year-old Scott, who had moved back to the island and was now living in the old apartment. In reality, Barbara looted the property, removing jewelry, furniture, artwork, and George's stamp and coin collections. Scott thought she was acting unhinged. According to him, Barbara left the apartment bare, even taking the bed Scott slept in. Scott told his father, George, who suspected that Barbara was selling these items. George's attorney filed a motion to hold Barbara in contempt for raiding the apartment in San Juan. In September of 1990, the judge presiding over the divorce warned Barbara that if she continued to hoard the couple's joint property, she might be fined or sent to jail. Barbara was furious about this perceived injustice. She denied that she was at fault. Instead, she insisted that her husband was the one stealing items from the property. She did not back this assertion with any hard evidence, and her son Scott felt compelled to denounce his mother's accusations. Scott signed an affidavit stating that his father had never taken anything from the apartment. For Barbara, this was yet another act of disloyalty. She lashed out cruelly at her son, going so far as to say he should die for what he had done. Barbara's erratic behavior was a sign of her growing paranoia. When George filed a broad estimate of his assets with the court, he determined his wealth to be between $2 million and $12 million. Barbara refused to believe this accounting. She thought that George was hiding money in various properties in Puerto Rico. That fall, Barbara also hired a new lawyer, 40-year-old Manuel Martinez. He had a background in Puerto Rican law and she wanted someone to sniff out the real estate holdings she believed George was hiding. Manuel did not have the powerhouse reputation of Barbara's other elite lawyers. Barbara supposedly found him in the yellow pages, but when she walked into his office inquiring about his experience in Puerto Rican law, Manuel touted his education and background in the territory. 
Manuel was born in Miami, Florida, but raised in Bayamon, Puerto Rico. He attended law school on the island and handled some property eviction cases there before moving to New York City to start a new practice. For a professional lawyer, Manuel projected a brutish manner. He reportedly had a history of drug use and criminal behavior, and he kept some unsavory company, associating with men described as conmen and wannabe gangsters. Barbara and George's son, Scott, took note of Manuel's rough personality when the lawyer accompanied his mother on a trip back to Puerto Rico shortly after Barbara retained him. The pair stopped by Scott's apartment, where they ran into Scott's roommate, Omar Quinones. Manuel took in Omar's six-foot-two, 250-pound physique and remarked, you look like you could take a couple of slugs and keep walking. Both Omar and Scott found the comment aggressive, and Scott wondered how his mother happened to get involved with the lawyer. But Barbara was not bothered. Perhaps she was pleased with Manuel's tough guy act. She wanted a fighter who could get her the money she felt she was owed. However, while Barbara prepared for battle, George was tired of the acrimony. Most of the time, George could keep his spirits high. Moving in with Mary Louise felt like stepping out of a gloomy fog into a ray of sunlight. But as wonderful as it was to leave his old life behind, he couldn't really start fresh until things were finally finished with Barbara. George had tried to stay civil, but it was clear that things had gotten too heated. He was beginning to think that the only way out was to give Barbara whatever she wanted. At this point, he was prepared to give her half of everything he owned. It felt like a small price to pay for his freedom. But George wondered if Barbara would ever truly be satisfied. He thought he knew her so well, but even he was surprised by how she had changed over the last few months. He felt with guilt that he had destroyed the sensible woman he'd married. He had driven her to become a fuming shell of a person, angry at the world, lashing out at everyone who cared about her. Still, George had to hope that things would turn out all right. Perhaps if he made a new settlement offer, she would see that his intentions were good. She might finally understand that he wasn't trying to cheat her out of anything. He only wanted to move on, to give both of them a chance at happiness. Early that fall, while Barbara was becoming more and more convinced that George was hiding assets from her, George was trying to find a solution that would allow their marriage to end as cleanly as possible. Their son, 22-year-old William, had started law school at Cardozo University, and George enlisted him to act as a mediator. George was working with William on an offer to send to Barbara. He was optimistic that they might finally come to an agreement. But Barbara was having a different sort of discussion with her legal counsel, Manuel Martinez. Manuel was not a high-profile lawyer. He didn't have many clients like Barbara Kogan, who came from incredible wealth. Evidently, he wanted to get as much money out of Barbara as he could, if not through protracted legal fees, then through other means. 
Manuel knew how bitter Barbara felt towards George, so he encouraged her rage. He told her that he thought it was unconscionable how George had gone after a younger woman, leaving Barbara, as she put it, penniless. Manuel began hinting that George deserved to die for what he had done. If George were dead, all of Barbara's problems would go away. Her marriage would be over without the strain of the divorce. Manuel said that he knew professionals who could arrange the hit if Barbara could come up with $100,000 in payment. As Barbara considered Manuel's offer, she recalled that George had taken out three life insurance policies years earlier. Barbara was listed as the beneficiary of these policies, which were worth about $4 million. On October 15, 1990, Barbara called the insurance companies to determine whether the policies were still in effect. She was informed that they remained valid. The wheels began turning. Barbara was tired of fighting, but she also didn't want to give George the satisfaction of giving up. Still, when George proposed that they have a meeting on October 23, 1990 to go over his settlement offer, Barbara agreed. Her compliance gave George hope that she was interested in a resolution. George didn't know that Barbara had already come to a decision. She wasn't going to give him the tidy divorce he wanted. She'd see him dead first. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of George and Barbara Kogan's story. We'll discuss the brutal murder that disrupted a quiet Upper East Side neighborhood and also talk about the difficulties attorneys encountered as they attempted to prosecute the crime. For more information on George and Barbara Kogan, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Millionaire's Wife, the true story of a real estate tycoon, his beautiful young mistress, and a marriage that ended in murder by Kathy Scott, extremely helpful to our research, along with the New York Times' fantastic coverage of the trial. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs.